Malcolm Holmline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. Good to be with you. Our final weekly update of the year. Some might argue it's time to reminisce. Some may argue it's time to reflect. And I want to ask you the following, as much as we have to talk about current events, and I know that they're very important. Uh, it was this week, 30 years ago, if I, if I recall correctly, you were actually at the White House when the Oslo Accords were signed. And you were very friendly, and again, if I'm saying anything inaccurate, correct me. You were very friendly with uh, those who were the architects of the Oslo Accords. And at the same time, you were very friendly with people who were at the opponents of the Oslo Accords. Um, I mean, rightfully so. That's the type of position you had and continue to have. Uh, what were your thoughts? What, were your, what was your thinking? What was going through your mind as those accords were being signed 30 years ago? Frankly, I watched Rabin's face and his distaste for and reluctance to shake hands with Arafat. And I had spoken to him. In fact, you know, we were the first people, the chairman of the conference and I were asked to come to Israel that the morning Paris came back, and we were the first people, even before their staffs, to be briefed on the Oslo Accords. And I asked many questions. I raised many objections. Um, and at the end, when I, we met first with Paris and then separately with Rabin, because they didn't talk to each other too much, and uh, Rabin in the end said to me, every question you asked me was right, and your concerns are right. But let me ask you a question. And they went on to describe what the Israel's challenges facing Syria, Iraq, Iran, and the Palestinian challenges on the security front. And he said, Palestinians in Syria are not existential threats. Iran and Iraq are. And he said, I can't fight all four at the same time. So if we can eliminate some of them from the, the equation, that will put us in a very different position to be able to defend Israel. I said, Tim, Mr. Prime Minister, it's the only argument I've heard that makes any sense to me. Right. But, uh, but the patience with which he, he addressed it, because you could see his own concerns. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't the architect of it. And, and I have to say, at that day, it, I found it very difficult sitting there, and especially with Arafat, with whom I refused to shake hands at the event at a, a line. And I will tell you something that uh, Arafat complained to the Secretary of State that I refused to meet with him. He complained to the Israeli, and I went to Rabin, and I said, listen, if you tell me that's important for Israel, I will consider it, but I can't shake hands with him. He said to me, he's the most disgusting person I ever met, and he said he approached, he came to me also about it, and I'm telling you, don't do it. I'll tell you if it's necessary, but don't do it otherwise. And at the signing ceremony, he pulled me in on the receiving line, and he said, not yet even at that moment. So that was my reflections on that uh, occasion. The, uh, I mean, there are plenty of uh, analysts, and, and I don't know if it's a fair comparison, but just I'm tossing it out there so people will understand you know, my line of thinking here. I mean, there's a legitimate argument about the peace treaty with Egypt. You know, Camp David Accords, I mean, I understand the, uh, you know, the, the giving away land uh, was you know, uh, objected to by many. Many felt the agreement could be made without that type of concession. But for argument's sake, you know, what it did in terms of security of Israel, it's, there's at least a 
discussion there. Can you look back 30 years later and say there's a discussion there that things could have been worse or things could have been, you know, altered in a way that um, uh, that uh, you know, would have made conditions worse for our brothers and sisters in Israel, if not for the Oslo Accords? Make Everybody's making those cases. Read all of the post-mortems then and now. People make every case uh, you want. But l- let's look at who we're dealing with. Look at Abbas's comments just in the last week. He knows who, who, who our, our partner is supposed to be. And the fact that the world is silent and that they have been saying that they, they say that Hitler killed the Jews for being Jews and that Europe hated Jews because they were Jews. He said it's not true. They fought against these people because they're the role in society, which had to do with usury, you know, taking interest, money, and so on. And even Hitler said, this is him saying it, that he fought the Jews because of these things. This was not about anti-Semitism. And, and, and it goes on to say that the U.S. was a partner in the Balfour Declaration who invented the Jewish state with Britain and America. This is who we're, we're supposed to negotiate with. This is who's sitting there leveraging the, the, the discussions with Saudi Arabia right. to, to, uh, to take advantage and wants hundreds of millions of dollars and all sorts of additional concessions. And look what they're doing, the disrespect that if Israel did anything like it, you would have had the United Nations, everybody, where they're building on Joshua's altars, on the ruins of a place mentioned in Tanakh. And an inspector who went there discovered that they started paving the roads for 32 housing units on the ruins of this historic state, which is in both in Yoshua and in the uh, uh, The site, which is right near Shechem, is Area B which is falls under their administrative control, but joint PA Israel security control. And yet they, despite the protests and everything, they are going ahead with it. No respect for our history and tradition. And uh, when it comes to their demands, as you described, they have the world behind them that if they make something up, they make it up. Forget about whether it's, uh, there's an ounce of truth to it. If they make something up, uh, they get the world and the United Nations to go along with them. So that's uh, part of our reminiscing and uh, recollecting from September of 1993 and the Oslo Accords. And by the way, we should mention that the uh, the Paris mayor rescinded the, the medal that was given to Abbas in light of the comments this week. And we don't always see pro-Israel gestures uh, coming from Paris, coming from France. So that was that was good to see, right? It was good to see. I would like to see more things done by the United States. To, I mean, they, they condemned the comments, the different American officials. But there, should, there has to be something concrete because it's reflective of what we're dealing with. The Fatah party brags about the fact that their security officers are, are involved in the terrorist activities. And they said that they have more than 350 of our prisoners are from the PA security forces. In other words, they're PA employees who were involved in terrorist attacks. And remember, a lot of this is funded and trained by Western donors. So they have to start not just rescinding medals, but they have to start rescinding the aid and stuff and hold them to account. And it's an interest in the Palestinians themselves who reject this government. And yet we continue to kowtow to them. Uh, do you think the timing is interesting, uh, era of the U.N. Uh, General Assembly, or he could have said this at any time? No, he, he has said this all along. And, you know, he has a history in this regard with his doctoral thesis and, and uh, whatever. But, you know, Germany blasted him, a few others did, but not, not outcry. You know, that when an Israeli makes a comment, 
And, you know, right away they come down on the extremist right wing and the most extreme government ever, et cetera, et cetera. And yet when he says these outrageous things, let alone the actions that continue and the the um, the explosives that are being smuggled and then the, uh, you know, men and women now trying to stab people and carry out these attacks, you know, the, the Performa uh, condemnations are not sufficient. Oh, on the subject of anti-Semitism and uh, you know, the debate about Jew hatred, what do you make of the Elon Musk ADL exchange this week? I mean, give me your analysis uh, of these uh, lawsuits, public statements uh, that he and the organization made, um, you know, publicly uh, during this week. So, you know, this started as soon as he, when he was um, buying uh, the uh, now X for Twitter, which has been a vehicle for, for uh, people to express the most anti-Semitic views, and a small minority of the sites actually get taken down or are pursued. And from the very beginning, he started, he made comments, and ADL uh, did um, cause some advertisers and others, they, he, he claims, to uh, withdraw the funding, their support. And he claims a huge amount of damage and the amount of money that it cost them. Wow. This is, but, but what's very important to understand is this in the larger context, and it's something I'm working very much on together with the, the people at NCRI and elsewhere, about how the Internet has become a modern-day vehicle for the open expression of Jew hatred in its most mild forms, including threats against Jews. And... It is an overwhelming challenge of our time because, you know, Hitler took months, maybe longer, to spread the big lie. Today, it's done in nanoseconds. Yep. And the number of incidents and the, the virulence and the, you know, we had a, they did a study of 100 million tweets between 20 and 22, which was presented to the Knesset, the finding, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It's so overwhelming. And you see that Israel is attacked 55 times more than Russia you know, dozens of times more than Iran or China or human rights grounds alone, let alone on everything else. And yet you don't see the kind of outcry and the condemnations uh, that they're afraid of him. And now the ADL is caught and lost in a battle with uh, with them over his, and he's threatening them with lawsuits, they're threatening him with lawsuits. Right. The fact is it's reflective of a cancerous event in our society with, and there are no controls or limited controls over what happens on the internet. All right, but a couple of issues here. First of all, and obviously you have a good relationship with all the major organizations. I'm not looking for you to bash anybody. But one of the things that I'm concerned about is when a group like the ADL takes on a free speech issue. I understand we don't want any Jew bashing or anti-Semitic comments anywhere, certainly not in the you know viral environment of social media. I get it. But also when, when, when Jews come to the forefront of a movement that sort of calls for sense Censorship in certain ways, that gets me very nervous. What's your reaction to that? Well, I mean, a lot of things make me nervous. And I think, though, that there has to be a red line somewhere about some of the anti-Semitic stuff that is allowed to be expressed and continues to be expressed, sometimes even by columnists in the New York Times. Uh, where and, and for those who didn't see Richie Torres's response, Congressman Torres's response yeah. to Peter Beinhardt and the criticisms of Tom Friedman's screed 
against Israel. He had become so marginalized and irrelevant in recent years, and now he found a new yep. result when he came go and attack Israel because he I caught because he, he caught up to the New York Times frankly now now they now, now they love featuring him even more I, I, I well they will but I think he you know this is the views he always had and he's trying to still justify his uh, failed efforts with this Saudi claim years ago and right. uh, I guess because people quote didn't listen to him quote they they you know he's going to continue to punish them but the, the nature of his comments you can criticize Israel and you can criticize policies with Israel that's not what this is, and to tell them that the Saudis shouldn't allow and U.S. let Netanyahu make them useful idiots, I mean, just undermines every fundamental of the relationship and impacts directly the security of the state of Israel. And I think the, so they, you know, the sensitivity to censorship is always something Jews are concerned about. On the other hand, there has to be a limit. We know what goes, what happens when it's allowed to go unfettered, and it is unfettered today. Young people today are being influenced by what's being said whether it's rappers or commentators or some of these extremists of left and right. Or, or, and uneducated, or uneducated people who get a massive uh, following. Yes, people who, are not, who, and who know very little. Yeah, exactly. Especially if somebody can put together two sentences, make them rhyme, and they become major influencers. And what we don't know, at least I didn't, is the scope of influence that a lot of these, quote, influencers, the term they use, they can have 20, 30, 40 million followers yep. who will be devoted to them. And we don't even understand the power. And when they start expressing these horrific views, the impact that it has on the next generation and why we see it expressed on our campuses and the foreign powers that are behind it and the foreign money, which we're only beginning to scratch the surface to understand how vast it is. Look, we discussed this, uh, you know, during the Union Square riot a few uh, Fridays ago. I mean, are, are you worried? And I know everything worries you. I get that. But are you worried as compared to prior eras that it's just too overwhelming that the number of tweets and the amount of social media and so much falsehood out there on issues like this, that it's, it's gotten it continues to be so viral and, and you know, that it's, it's almost impossible to contain. Are you worried that even with the regulations and the red lines and everything that you're working on to negotiate with people like Elon Musk and others, you know, who run all this social media in this country and the world. Is it is it possible it's so overwhelming there's no way to get it back? It is a, a major challenge. Nothing is beyond us if we have a unified approach, if the Congress and the administration do what they have to do, if foreign governments do what they have to do within the bounds of free speech, and to, to hold to account those who, who engage in it and those who support them. And when we find out that there are foundations or foreign uh, governments or organizations that are behind a lot of these sites and a lot of the hatred that is being um, uh, spewed forward, you know, I mean, we see the United States getting involved in internal affairs in Israel, including the who has a certain museum in Israel, it's just uh, unbelievable to me that they that that they get involved with. Mm. But there are major issues where we're not seeing the international community expressing themselves. And what other museum in the world do they that rises to that occasion that they that they start getting involved in the um, in the choice of and and for the reasons that they didn't even explore. Um, and whether it's right or wrong is, is secondary to the principle of this. What a great and, point! What a, I never even thought of that. What a great point. 
It's outrageous that they'd interfere in something like that. It's outra- I, I don't. I didn't realize the outrage until you just pointed it out. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web and AlchemSingle.com on the AlchemSingle network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. One week from today, our final weekly update of the year on Erev Rosh Hashanah is coming Thursday, our 40th anniversary celebration between six and nine a.m. from Teaneck at Poppy's here at JM. The M. Malcolm Holmline is with us, of course. Live via telephone. What do you think of the nomination of Jack Lewis, ambassador to Israel? Well, it's a, it's an interesting choice. It's an Orthodox Jew getting the position the second time an ambassador to Israel. It's an Orthodox Jew, um, uh, and uh, you know there are a lot of issues that have to be uh, that are being addressed in terms of some of the past comments. It's with involvement of the Iran issue of the JCPOA during the Obama administration and his current involvement in an organization that they try to portray as being um, yeah, an advocate for closer ties with China, which right now is a very sensitive subject. So I think there are a lot of things that have been discussed, but his competence and his uh, um, intelligence and stuff are certainly well-known and recognized, uh, and I'm sure his personal commitment uh, as well. But, you know, we'll have to see. I think it's going to take a long time in terms of the a confirmation, probably not before the end of the year, December probably, uh, which means that uh, depending upon the outcome of the next election, he could be there for a year, could be there for less. Uh, there were a lot of people who thought that they wouldn't nominate anybody in the interim until, you know, they have the outcome and see what, uh, what will be. But uh, I guess they either have confidence or willing to take a chance on it. Do you think his attitude, outcome. Do you think his attitude toward the JCPOA is Obama-like or you're not sure? He did support the uh, right, but sometimes, but sometimes a different administration might bring you know a, a different attitude, or is, is he simply going to reflect what the president's uh, um, uh, endorsing, and, and we should expect that he would support it again? Well, I don't think he's expressed in, on the current thing because he, you know he's in private life now, right. um, but and he, he, as any administration and any ambassador, reflects what the president. Says. I mean, they obviously put their own tone on it and how they talk to the public. Uh, you know, as somebody who cares about Israel is not going to go down the, the track that some did where they became the super critics uh, of Israel. Um, so let's see what happens with the hearings and the, the and, nomination. And this is a legitimate question, but you might think it's not. this is not the proper forum for it. But I'm just wondering if there are times when you say to yourself, it might be better to have someone who's not of the Jewish faith, be U.S. ambassador to Israel? I think it depends on the person, not uh, not on uh, having somebody who's Jewish. It should be no different than an Irish person getting assigned to Ireland or a Catholic to the Vatican or to Italy, which is general in the practice. Uh, I don't think that that's the criteria. It's, it's the views. I mean, David Friedman was Jewish, I think. And uh, <laughs> according to according, according to reports, right, and um, and still is, by the way, based on our research, and, and despite right, despite <laughs> him not being ambassador, he remained Jewish, and um, and Tom Nines was Jewish also, you know, right? Yeah, the, once he's nominated or once he's approved, he'll be the third Jew in a row to hold the, a fourth Jew in a row to hold the post. Right? Shapiro was the first of three, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right, and Shapiro also. I don't know how to uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. 
is it Eritreans? I, I honestly don't know how to pronounce that. I didn't even know where, where, what country uh, these migrants were from. But the major riot last Shabbos in Tel Aviv. Now uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu um, uh, pondering a decision about what to do in terms of keeping uh, this uh, ethnic group in Israel or not. Could you give us some background here and just explain this whole situation? Yes, this is Eritreans, and they come from Eritrea which is what? why they're called Eritreans. Where, where is and that? Where is that? Africa, 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 near Somalia, near Ethiopia. Wow. Uh, they, and they, they've had these long-standing wars between them. Eritrea and Ethiopia had a very vicious long-term fight. So Eritrea um, is, is actually strategically important, uh, but because it has a pressure regime and the economic conditions, they have migrants all over the world. What is interesting is that here in Israel, that this case in Israel, uh, where there was going to be a celebration at the embassy of Eritrea, a cultural event, they're taking place all over the world. And all over the world, there were riots against them or demonstrations against them. The only thing is that it's only Israel that gets uh, focused on and reported, maybe because the press has access there that they don't get in other countries or because they don't care. Because this is an eternal conflict between the pro and anti-government forces and a lot of the immigrants who left the country. Now, the question is, the people who are pro-government, how do they qualify as refugees, as political refugees, if they're supporters of the government and pro-government forces? But that's the society question. Here, I mean, it's a legitimate thing to think about. They're, they're, uh, 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 they're really economic refugees, not political refugees, right. and they seek asylum because they face persecution. But here they are demonstrating for the government or on the side of the government, and then you had a much larger number who were against it. Uh, I don't know why the police, who were alerted to this uh, potential, uh, whether they were sufficiently prepared or not, is unclear. But the, the, the these things, these demonstrations, take place all over the world whenever they have the, when they have this annual uh, cultural, they call it, festival. But obviously, the the opponents see it as uh, government trying to whitewash their record, and and uh, uh, therefore they they use this as an opportunity to demonstrate, and they got out of hand. And Netanyahu talked about uh, deporting those who, who engaged in violence to get thirty policemen put in the hospital or were injured. Uh, it's not tolerable. The situation in South Tel Aviv all along has been very tense because of it. Uh, there are eighteen thousand in Israel. Mm. Uh, which for a little country is a lot of people. So on the migrant side of the issue, what an irony that the United States is going through what we're going through over here and, you know, and watching, you know, policies from Washington uh, really alter many cities and uh, many activities throughout the entire country. And now, as Netanyahu, uh, you know, surmised, um, you know, he may have to crack down and, uh, and deal with their own migrant issue because of the upheaval that might cause or has already caused in Israel. Certain irony to that, no? There's an irony, but, you know, there's a massive movement of populations. We, we don't think about it because their first target is Europe. But look how many cities in Europe have changed and their security situation, their demographics. And think of the long-term implications because most of these are young people who will have a high birth rate and they're living in communities which have no birth rate or very low ones, certainly not even replacement. And uh, this will change the uh, the nature of, of a lot of uh, European societies. And uh, we're seeing it here, too, with the, the mass migration of people. 
um, and with many of them, I mean, there are legitimate refugees who should be welcomed and should, who are escaping, but, but when we think about uh, the fact that, that many are coming from countries, uh, including uh, Iran and elsewhere, that there are all sorts of reports, which I've, I've not substantiated, I can't, obviously, but right. the reports that the Chinese have sent in many people into the country, others have, um, and again, legitimate refugees, I think we have to be sympathetic to and, and right. understand but you can't just welcome and open, throw open the doors to illegal uh, aliens who are not yeah. coming, by the way, now from South America. By right. way, most of them. Yeah, I can't imagine that uh, Netanyahu wouldn't agree with you on that issue as an overall analysis. Uh, tell, speaking of Netanyahu, tell me about the phone call, Netanyahu and uh, Zelensky. Is there, in fact, an effort to repair a frayed relationship right now? There is, and it's in the interest of both countries to to have that and to for them to talk. Uh, don't forget, we also have a Jewish community in in right. uh, the Ukraine and a, and and a larger Jewish community bomb. next weekend in the Ukraine. <laughs> right. So that that was the immediate concern. Um, you know, Zelensky has made a lot of comments and demands on Israel, criticizing Israel for not come, doing it up when, in fact, Israel has done far more than most other countries in the world. And certainly with the burdens that Israel faces, um, have been supportive and they're giving him defensive uh, equipment. They can't give him offensive uh, missiles. For one thing, they can't even operate them and it would take a long time. And it's not, uh, Iron Dome is not appropriate for the challenges they face. But the, the uh, but they've given them defensive uh, equipment. They've done humanitarian aid. They did the uh, field hospital and many other things, and yet uh, whatever they did was were subject still to more criticism, more demands and pressure. Well, it's never enough. You know You know what the West is giving? The West is giving billions and billions of dollars on a weekly basis. What Israel's doing is, of course, not enough. And, well, yeah, the, some, of the, some of the West is giving billions of dollars. And the... the now, another billion just went when, Blink, and, when yeah, Blinken was another, there. This yeah. time, he gave $500 million in military in the balance in humanitarian. Right. Uh, but also Israel has taken in thousands and thousands of refugees from Ukraine, Jews and non-Jews, uh, have come to Israel. Uh, and so I think that the, the discussion was important because you have the immediate deadline of, and you can't dissuade the people from going to uh, to Oman for, for Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. Right. So they got to do the maximum to make sure that they're going to be safe. All right, tell me now about the other interesting pairing this week, uh, maybe even more interesting, Putin and Erdogan. So, you know, it's a marriage of convenience and necessity for both. Both are facing immense challenges. Erdogan, whom I will meet with in a short while when he comes to New York for the U.N., um, Session is facing tremendous internal pressures. The economic conditions in the country are terrible. Their currency is devalued by a half or more. The the, um, the challenges he faces, and also you have, you know, the fights over the shipping uh, of grain, which Turkey actually challenged the Russian blockade uh, with one of the ships. And the the there are a whole slew of issues uh, of concerns, and we're seeing all of these shifting. Alliances now, which would be the subject of a of a whole morning of yours about what's happening because of the BRICS and the invitation to countries. And by the way, Saudi Arabia did not yet accept membership in the UAE. They uh, said that they were honored by the invitation or whatever, but they didn't accept Iran. Of course, accepted right away. But you see the growth of that. The Shanghai Council, the the, the attempts at de-dollarization, the 
uh, so many things are, are, are going on where you see the shifting sands and people are hedging their bets in part, they say, because they're, they're, they, they can't count on the West and even the United States and that uh, the events in the Gulf that we've discussed over a long time uh, were evidence of that. So you have a, a lot of shifting things and, and they're driven because of their situations. Obviously, Putin's internal situation is bad. Economic conditions and pressures are bad. The war is draining on them. And, and uh, now there's a coalescence between Iran, China, and Russia working together, doing naval exercises and other things. And I think Turkey looks at this and wants to protect its own interests in, in this regard, in, in the region. So there are a lot of forces, and there's only some of the, the, the surface ones, that are driving uh, these considerations and trying to come up with pragmatic solutions that are just really, in most cases, are Band-Aids over more fundamental problems. If joining BRICS can be viewed as a slap in the face of the United States, I mean, doesn't this show, I mean, Iran obviously doesn't care. They'll slap the U.S. as much as they can. And the UAE, obviously, you know, both from an economic point of view and I think from a governmental point of view, diplomatic point of view, they're in a pretty strong position. So, you know, they probably don't care what the U.S. reaction is. But the Saudis can't possibly consider it as the U.S. is shuttling back, you know, shuttling dignitaries back and forth to try and negotiate some type of deal that includes Israel. I mean, they, they, they wouldn't be able to this time to slap the U.S. in the face like that and join and accept an invitation to BRICS, correct? Well, India is a, an ally of the United States and is a key partner in the BRICS. That's the I in the BRICS. Um, and, but the, the, I think it's something more fundamental in terms of the BRICS being an expression of the southern sphere, even though Russia is not geographically in the southern, but they were talking about, you know, the have-nots versus the haves or Right. But the Saudis don't want to be seen in that context. They don't, they're not looking to be seen as underdogs. They're, and they and you, he are two of the most powerful countries, given their wealth and the ability to spend prolifically. And uh, they are looking to protest their, protect their interests, like their negotiations with the United States, where what's the first thing they want? A defense treaty with the United States. They want the right to develop their own nuclear uh, program and with aid from the United States. Uh, I mean, they have a whole series of things, and then it was thrown into question of whether um, they can then establish diplomatic relations. They're contingent on, on what happens with the uh, PA, right. and the PA, of course, keeps raising its demands. It wants hundreds of millions of dollars. It wants all sorts of concessions on other issues, which are, uh, you know, internal affairs in Israel, et cetera. Um, I, the Saudis and Saudi people don't care about them uh, largely. It's a symbolic issue. It's a sensitive matter, but it's not reflective of um, um, the, you know, the priorities that they've set. So everybody's leveraging everything they can to their own interests. I hear that. Anything new with the U.N. schedule? We still assume that the prime minister of Israel will speak in the day or two after Rosh Hashanah. He's still scheduled to come right after Rosh Hashanah, and um, we'll hopefully uh, he will be here for may perhaps the whole week, and, and then go, go back for Yom Kippur in time for Yom Kippur. And with all the shuttle diplomacy going on, do you, do you think there'll be a Saudi deal of some type or some major announcement? Or I shouldn't be shocked if we go through the rest of the calendar year, and I mean the secular year, and there won't be anything significant announced. 
I wouldn't be surprised either way. I do think that there are, you know, stumbling blocks and difficult issues that have to be overcome, but it's certainly in Saudi Arabia's interest. You know, they don't want to be in the company, locked into the company of China and Russia, the, the crown prince. The, um, uh, MBS has a, a, a long-term view, and he, he wants, which includes all sorts of development issues and other things that they that he wants to break out of the, you know, the past image of, you know, riding on camels in the, in the sand. It's an advanced country, and those who have seen it, as, you, know, have the, you see the, what, what is happening there and the development of Naomi. Do you meet, do you meet with any of them next week? Anybody from Saudi Arabia that you'll likely come across next week in New York when, with the U.N. Or, or not? We'll have to see. We don't know yet even who's coming from uh, right. Saudi Arabia. I don't think MBS will come, probably the foreign minister. Uh, but there aren't that many days because of uh, right. Rosh Hashanah. No, I get that. I'm just wondering if, if someone like yourself has an opportunity to meet with people like this, will get more insight into you know the answer to my question, whether this is inevitable. We or... have in the past. We have in the past had meetings, and we obviously talk to the ambassadors of these countries regularly right. and periodically with the foreign ministers. There will be a series of meetings with people like you know Erdogan and presidents of other countries uh, that are already set and many more will be as they finalize their travel arrangements. Yeah. I thought of you this morning, by the way, because uh, Harry Rothenberg, who does the Parshas HaShavuah for us in the 7 o'clock hour on Friday, he was talking about the irony, I don't know if that's the right word, but the dichotomy or the pairing, whatever you want to call it, of this week's Parshios being called Nitzavim and Vayelech. One meaning, of course, stay still, and one <laughs> stand still, one meaning, you know, start acting, walk, Vayelech. And I was saying to myself, boy, that sounds like the balance that you've had for the last many, many decades, making it the decision about when to take action and when to just, you know, keep quiet and not react to something. It's, it must, th- those are, I'm sure, are among the most difficult decisions you've had. It's always a difficult decision, and they and they come up just even in the last few days on sensitive issues, and we always have considerations that we have to take into account. Even on this Twitter there. thing, by the way, even on this Twitter thing, you sometimes don't know if it's better needs of him or Rayela. Right, but but you know what we, we we learned that silence is not the answer. Right, it, it, it it's a question of of not being uh, jerks with needs and just reacting each time as our guts would tell us. We got to think it through. For instance, you know sometimes in Iran we have a domestic Iranian Jewish population we have to worry about. We have other considerations that people don't think about unless you're really deep into the issues that you know wouldn't even come up to most people, and then they say, oh yeah, that's true, that's true. And the, you know, so you have to weigh it and it doesn't mean it's always the right decision that is made. So we have to consult. We have to talk to, to Rabbanim. We have to talk to experts. We have to talk to people who, who know and who can guide us in, in all, on each issue, different, uh, uh, you know, assemblies of people that you would consult with. Right. But nobody can assume that they know. Or, I, I, you know, I speak to the think tank people and you can have two of them. Great experts, but completely on opposite sides of the same issue. So you have to weigh the information and make decisions based upon what what will protect the interests that and, you are and, us- and usually them. the more information you have, the more one is conflicted. <laughs> the more, and more confused that we yeah, are. It's so unbelievable and so true. All right, we will speak to you, please God, next week on our anniversary celebration, obviously next Friday for the final weekly update of this year. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and thanks for joining us this morning. Malcolm Holmline is Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.